You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Jerry Conway, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Epic Marvel Podcast. I am your host, Curtis Findlay, and today we have an interview with Jerry Conway. This is the second time he's been on my show. Uh, The last one, we talked about the Avengers, and in this episode, we're talking about the monster era of the 1970s of Marvel Comics. This is the period where the, the code relaxed a little bit and allowed comics to have characters like werewolves and and Dracula, and, and there's there's more to the story than that. Um, I'll let Jerry talk about that when we get into the interview. But just before we jump into that, I want to give a quick plug for uh, my social media outlets, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just search for Epic Marvel Podcast, and you'll be able to find me there. Uh, I'm also doing live streams every day on my Facebook page on the Epic Marvel podcast page, going through an issue of What If every single day while we're in isolation and quarantine. So if you want to check that out, uh, they are at different times each day. I don't have a set schedule because my schedule is sort of all up in the air, depending on uh, what my kids are up to and all that kind of stuff. So um, just keep your eyes open for that. You can subscribe to my notifications on the Facebook page if you want to be alerted uh, every time I go live. You can also join my Facebook group if you search for the Epic Collections and uh, join the conversation about Marvel's Epic Collections and kind of everything to do with Marvel's collected edition trade paperbacks. We have a grand old time, and we just passed 800 people in the group, so that's pretty darn cool, hey? And if you want to give us a couple of bucks, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thunderquack. We're part of the Thunderquack Podcast Network and help us keep our podcast running by donating a buck or two. That's all the plugs I have for now. Here he is, Mr. Jerry Conway. So my first question for you is about the comic code. And I know that it it went through some changes in the 70s. And can you tell me what were the differences between the comic code before the changes and after the changes? Well, the comic code is, was always uh, a really strange and inconsistent and contradictory series of uh, interpretations by the, the different people who headed the code. Theoretically, the, code, the, the premise of the code was to uh, prevent the publication of books that were designed to terrorize kids and to give them nightmares, uh, you know, and also to stop encouraging crime and, uh, you know, teenage uh, juvenile delinquency and all that nonsense. So prior to the early 70s, uh, the the major companies were all 100% in on producing code books. And then Stan broke the code. (laughs) Stan Lee broke the code. Right by producing a issue of Spider-Man at the request 
of the uh, government, the, the Nixon administration, asked uh, both companies to produce anti-drug issues of uh, one of their comics. And Stan very, you know, uh, compliantly and, and uh, honestly did what uh, he could. Uh, he did a Spider-Man comic that, you know, featured a drug issue for with Harry Osborn, and the code refused to allow it to go into production uh, or l- allow it to have the code symbol. And Stan was, uh, he, he felt that this was, was nonsense, A, I mean, yeah. it's a, something where the government specifically specifically asked for it. Uh, and B, he also kind of, Stan was a, a very, uh, uh, I mean, for all of his, his many faults, but was also a very dedicated guy to doing what he felt was right. And he felt it was right to do this book. And he convinced Martin Goodman, uh, the publisher, uh, that it was right to do this book. And so they published it without the code, uh, without the symbol. Right. And surprise, surprise, the world did not collapse. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, the book sold just fine. And uh, the code was revealed to have no real authority. Ah. So at that point, the people who ran the code and the, and the various uh, companies that uh, contributed to financing the code sat down and decided, okay, we have to address the, the elephant in the room here, which is that the code is out of step with what modern readership expects. So they retranslated you know, and readapted the code. Denny O'Neill made a comment at the time uh, about the absurdity of the code. He said, uh, according to the comics code, uh, you cannot have a zombie, but you can have a ghoul. And so he said, you can't have the walking dead, but as soon as they sit down, you can eat them. (laughs) 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 Because, of course, a zombie is a walking dead and the ghoul eats the dead. That's so (laughs) funny. (laughs) (laughs) So the code was so, so ridiculous and and so inconsistent that uh, they recognized they had to change things. Uh, in fact, we, we had the we were already publishing some books uh, that were reprints of earlier Marvel titles, and these were books that had been published under the code horror books. Uh, you know, from the from the era when Marvel was producing uh, you know the early Strange Adventure, Strange Tales, and uh, Tales of Suspense. Right. Yeah. And and we, when we would republish them, the code would would disapprove them. And we'd be like, wait a minute, <laughs> these had already been published. Yeah. Right. How can you disapprove them? Oh boy. <laughs> so it was just it was a mess. And uh, basically, from from the time that Stan published that Spider-Man uh, to Several years later, when the, the code was officially dropped, uh, the code really ceased to have any real impact on what the individual publishers were doing. Uh, it became a, a rubber stamp uh, from that point on. Yeah. And people would just do it out of obligation or because of tradition? Yeah, yeah well... You know, as creators, we felt responsible for doing what we thought was appropriate for the readership that we imagined that we were reaching. Uh, and at that time, the comic book readership was primarily a, a, a younger readership. You know, it wasn't an adult readership as it is today. Readers were, on average, between 10 and 13 years old. So, you know, you didn't really want to do do anything that was, you know, too extreme. Right. So uh, when we finally started doing monster comics, we did them kind of like the, you know, the, the attitude was to, to sort of reach the level of scariness, if you want to say scariness, of the old universal monster movies, which all of us had watched, you know, on TV growing up. Yes. And it wasn't, those were not like 
terribly frightful films. They were they were more uh, juvenilia in a lot of ways than mm-hmm. really scary. Although I did have nightmares about you know, <laughs> you know Frankenstein when I was a kid, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it wasn't you know wasn't the same as you would have today. You know, watching uh, something like uh, Hostel or uh, you know any any Eli oh, Roth. Exactly. Picture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So when you were, were you part of the conversation when these, these monster books were being talked about uh, for the first time? I, I wasn't really part of the conversation editorially. That was between uh, Roy Thomas and, uh, and Stan. Yeah. Marvel was going through an expansion. And so the idea was to come up with as many different types of books as we could do and not just, you know, en- endless numbers of superhero books, but to try to branch out into other areas that we might not have been serving uh, as well. And doing fantasy and, quote, monster titles was a way to expand the line without stepping on what we were already doing. Right. Uh, it looks like you were, you, you had a hand in launching a few of these titles as well. You were on board for the beginning of Tomb of Dracula and Werewolf by Night in Marvel Spotlight, right? Yes, yeah. I was uh, brought in by Roy, who conceived both those books, uh, came up with the the basic plot for uh, each of them, you know, in in the sense of like, this is what we want to do. I think he actually plotted the first issue of Werewolf by Night. And I came in and named the characters or, you know, wrote the dialogue and and created the characterizations for uh, these characters. And in terms of, uh, you know, setting them up, you know, like with Tomb of Dracula, I set it up and then Marv Wolfman took it over and and turned it into the masterpiece that it became. Mm -hmm. And with uh, Werewolf by Night, I was able to stay with that for uh, a year or so. And that was a lot of fun to do. And at the same time, Marvel was producing also these uh, the black and white magazine versions of these characters as well. Mm-hmm. Well, black and white version of uh, uh, Tomb of Dracula, yeah. Right, yeah, uh, Dracula Werewolf lives. By night, right. never. I, I, I don't believe Werewolf ever had a black and white version. Yeah, maybe it did. Not his own, not its own series, but there was the one Monsters Unleashed, and I know that you actually did a few prose stories for those ones starring right. Werewolf. Yeah. Now, what's uh, do you do a lot of prose writing yourself normally? Uh, well, I actually started, uh, I mean, one of the, uh, I had a simultaneous career writing prose during that period of time. I was, I, I had two science fiction novels published under my own name okay. and uh, two pseudonym novels published uh, uh, for a, um, a genre publisher. Uh, and I wrote short stories and uh, edited a magazine called Haunt of Horror that was a, a fantasy horror magazine that uh, had a couple of issues. Right. So I I had prose stories, you know, I, I've, been, I've been writing prose uh, simultaneously with my comic book writing. Hmm, okay. Like you were saying, they expanded their titles and they introduced a bunch of these ones like Marvel Spotlight, Adventure into Fear, these anthology ones that were pretty mm-hmm. specifically horror-based. Yes. And I understand those were sort of like a testing ground for characters or new writers and artists. Is that correct? Uh, well, that's what they became. Yeah, I mean, they, they were uh, Marvel Spotlight. Not really sure what the what the plan was, other than back at that time when you were publishing books th- that uh, were also distributed through the post office as subscription books. But Martin Goodman, who hated to spend money, uh, <laughs> uh, had had uh, this policy that that you would not replace a title with a new title 
you would replace maybe the main character in the title with a new character because you didn't have to then get a um, uh, a postal registration for that book. Oh, that okay. new book. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, so you could keep the keep the title going. That's why Strange Tales became Doctor Strange. Um, rather you know had dr strange in it for years before becoming a a separate dr strange book right right. uh because uh you could avoid paying the extra registration fee so uh for some of these books just the fact that they existed if if there was a a title that that you could throw a new character into you would do that one of them was Adventure to Fear number 10. You did an issue of Man-Thing. This was very early, and I, I'm i not exactly sure of the history of Man-Thing here, um, was, because this was before Steve Gerber got a hold of the character, right? right. Man-Thing had been introduced in Savage Tales. Uh, right. I wrote the story off of Roy, uh, Roy Thomas's plot, and then Len Wein did a story uh, that was also intended for Savage Tales, but Savage Tales was canceled, so that story was then uh, published, I think, in Fear. I'm not sure, or in some other title. It would be cut up and put somewhere else. And then I did, I did another story, which I guess, I'm not sure if it was intended directly for Fear or whether it was intended for Savage Tales uh, and then published in Fear. But yeah, that was... That was another, you know, one of. I mean, I had my hands on a lot of this stuff, but didn't really, you know, have much long-term creative impact because the people who followed me were much more invested in it than than I was with one or two stories. Right. Yeah. But you got to work with a host of really neat creators through this, like uh, Gene Colan and Mike Plug and Gray Morrow. That Man Thing issue uh, that you did was just—it looked really, really nice with Gray Morrow and Howard Chaykin. Yeah, what was yeah. your uh, what was your thought as you were you're creating these these monster books with these artists, and how did it, how did it differ from the superhero stuff that you do? Well, you know, the first work that I did in comics was for uh, House of Secrets and Witching Hour. Oh, uh, yeah, which were you know what we called at the time mystery stories, but they were really suspense thriller fantasy stories Mm -hmm. and uh as a writer of science fiction and fantasy in prose i i had had a lot of experience writing that type of material you know where the um the stories weren't weren't superhero based they were more character weird based stories and i like that you know i really enjoy writing that kind of thing i actually even wrote a few creepy and eerie stories, I think, around that time, nice. which didn't pay anything. <laughs> basic, but just because I loved that type of format. And I did some stories for Marvel also in their Tales of, uh, what was it, uh, Chamber of Secrets and uh, uh, Shadow, Tales of Shadow or something. Uh, yeah. So I, li- I liked that kind of moody, weird writing. And uh, it was a lot of fun to work with people like uh, Plug in particular, who had this really interesting style that was reminiscent of like the, the old AC comics, you know, the, the kind of larger than life, mm-hmm. cartoony but eerie, weird storytelling combination of Jack Davis and uh, Bill, Bill Elder. You know, this just very peculiar kind of kind of artwork that lent itself to this very rich, moody storytelling. And of course, Gene Colan is just a master at that kind of thing. And uh, Gray Morrow uh, had just such an interesting look to his work. Yeah, and 
I got to do a couple of stories with him over the years, uh, you know, in places like House of Secrets and uh, or uh, House of Mystery, and then the, the Man Thing work. So it was a real honor uh, getting to work with him. Yeah, his style is so very different than what you would typically see, even in the of the era. It's uh, oh yeah, it's so expressive, it's photographic. And, yeah, it's, it's yeah. also it's photographic. It's it's very naturalistic without losing the fantasy element. His poses, they're not extreme. You know, they're they're how people would actually move. <laughs> yeah. You know? So it's not. So when you put the fantasy element into it, it has an even greater impact because it looks so real. When he did his work at, at Creepy and Eerie, that's that was what made it so so wonderful. You know, is that you you could almost imagine this stuff happening in real life. It's, yeah, exactly. Uh, very effective. With your superhero work, you let your the monsters bleed into that as well. I, I've noticed uh, several Marvel team-up issues with the monsters, uh, including one with uh, Frankenstein and um, and Manwolf together. Mm-hmm. And, and I have the Monster Frankenstein collection that came out a few years back. That story seems like it is a wrap-up of the series. Uh, did you were you, did you put this in here to to tie up some loose ends or anything or was that probably yeah, yeah I, I think the idea was since the, since that book wasn't going forward it would be an opportunity I mean you're, you're also looking to tell a good story yeah and and if you have if you have elements that you can draw on from previous stories and make it into an effective story that's a natural thing to do you don't want to just waste that opportunity hmm. yeah and, and tell me about Manwolf bringing his like changing the character of John Jameson. Oh yeah, I wanted to do some new villains, quote quote villains, uh, for Spider-Man. That was one of my primary objectives on the book was to create new villains as I was going along. And uh, the idea of using John Jameson and, and turning, giving him you know villainous powers, I think it may have come from Roy, but we were very collaborative in those days. So I'm not really sure where where a particular notion comes from. But uh, doing a character called Manwolf just seemed natural, you know, for for a book like Spider-Man. We had so many man-dash characters. You know, we had Man-Thing, we had, uh, I did a thing called Man-Bull in Daredevil. (laughs) Uh, You know, there was Matt, and uh, Steve Gerber at one point said, we should do a character called Man-Man. Uh, <laughs> yeah right <laughs> so you know and steve would have been the guy to do it yeah <laughs> it would have been great. Um, the, the notion of doing manwolf uh, you know followed i think on the idea that we had uh, morbius uh who was a vampire villain and the idea of doing a werewolf villain for spider-man just flowed naturally from that you know you're going you're, you're trying to do the the uh the universal horror pantheon in some ways yeah. so uh, you know to to do our version of it would be uh, kind of a natural. Was there a Frankenstein analog to to the Manwolf and Morbius characters? I, I'm not really sure you can pick on any one of them, but I, I think maybe Hammerhead to a degree. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, he, he was a guy with a plate in his head. You know, he kind of looked like the old uh, Boris Karloff Frankenstein in a sense. Right. Uh, but he was certainly not, you know, a defective half man, half monster kind of thing. Uh, but uh, I, I don't think he would be an explicit analog. Hmm. But he could, you know, he could, you could do a threesome in that I think it would be convincing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, did the did the change of the rules for the comic code drastically affect the way you wrote, or did it was it just more just a convenience thing? Well, it didn't change. I don't think it changed anything other than to give you it gave you more opportunity mm-hmm. in terms of the kind of stories you could tell and the kind of characters you could use, and it made explicit things that were implicit. You know, so uh, it eased our eased the way away from resolutions that were just unbelievable. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, so rather than bending over backwards to make something uh, fit a code requirement, you could just do what was what was appropriate for the story. So in that sense, it it opened us up to not being more realistic because comics in that in that era were not really aiming to be realistic. But to to be a little fuller in uh, the range of stories that we could tell. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you have any examples that you can give me of of a time of of a scenario where the implied came out uh, because uh, of the change well, of the I mean, code? Yeah, I think I think we could t- just look at uh, a book like uh, Werewolf by Night. I mean, you, you could have, or or actually, let's take Tomb of Dracula because uh, a vampire could not be done in comics uh, under the code. However, earlier, Roy had created Morbius. Uh, and Morbius was a vampire, but he wasn't. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Okay, I see. Yep. So, so he was implicitly a vampire yeah. because he required infusions of blood or whatever, however it was that, that Roy uh, finessed it. But uh, he wasn't specifically a vampire. However, Dracula was <laughs> right. a vampire. Uh, so there's there's the implicit versus the explicit. Okay, gotcha. And what do you know? What the the reaction of uh, I, I I assume there were people, there were groups of people who were paying attention to comics with the code and getting upset when the comics were overstepping their boundaries because that's why the code was kind of there well, in the first place, right? Ironically, not by the early seventies. I mean, okay. by the early seventies, uh, people had moved on to TV as their big fear. Okay, uh, you know the the idea was that uh, comic books were first of all they were no longer ubiquitous in the culture the way they had been in the the 40s and 50s, comic book sales were way down. They were not a, a prime target anymore. For you couldn't you couldn't get a Senate committee to, to cover comics because uh, they just weren't that interesting to the average uh, viewer at mm. home. You know, right. all these hysterias are uh, driven by uh, the popularity of whatever medium it is that politicians can ramp up the outrage over. Right. Uh, I mean. It's it's not about whether these things actually matter to anybody because they really don't. They don't matter. People are always looking for a way to gain attention. Uh, and uh, when comics were very popular and you could get attention as a politician or as a activist group, that's when you were you cared. You know. So the comics code was simply a way to distract people and to provide cover for the publishers. And it was only the the determination of the particular people who were behind the code, you know, who were running the code that gave any any real force to the code. Hmm. So, you know, once once those people were exposed to the emperors without clothes, you know, <laughs> yeah. that that 
that you could publish an issue of Spider-Man without the code and it sold just fine, then the code ceased to have any power. Right. Because nobody really cared. Yeah. <laughs> you know, out there <laughs> out there in the buying public, the parents didn't pay attention. They didn't care. They, they had moved on to worrying about TV. Wow. Their, their obsession at that, that point was, you know, too much violence on television. You know, it's going to rot our children's brain. Uh, <laughs> so that became the issue yeah it's amazing um, how that changes and then there's like it's video games and yeah, yeah everything else it's, yep. it's right. that nasty rock and roll yeah all right you yeah. know it's it, it's rap music it's uh it's video games it's uh oh my god the internet you know right. oh my god it's tiktok you know i mean it's it's nonsense <laughs> it's always nonsense right it's whatever ever the politicians or the interest groups can latch on to to raise money and financing uh, for themselves and uh, get some action. Uh, local news can get some action. That's all they care about. Yeah. Uh, nobody actually cares about any of this. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a favorite of these monsters, characters, and even out of all the ones that we haven't talked about, Son of Satan or the zombie uh, or all of that? Yeah, I think my favorite is, is Werewolf by Night. Yeah? Because I was most attached to it, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably uh you know i think tomb of dracula as a book was terrific yeah uh, but dracula himself is not a particularly interesting character it's the <laughs> right. characters around him that were interesting yeah. and what marv did with those characters creating char- a character like blade for example right um, so for me werewolf by night was the most developed of the characters uh as a character uh, you know jack russell had a an inner life that was interesting to me so from that point of view all the others are you know sort of dependent upon the, the writer working on it you know how much inventiveness they could bring to it uh steve gerber certainly did a wonderful job with man thing but again it's not man thing that's interesting it's the supporting characters right yeah that's true so if marvel came to you and said uh we want you to do a horror book you would pick werewolf by night yeah yeah well i actually did a, a horror book for them uh, a couple of years ago, we did uh, Carnage. Uh, oh, of course, and, that's right. Yeah, and we used the uh, we used the format of da- uh, Tomb of Dracula, using Carnage as uh, the centerpiece, but focusing our story on the supporting characters who were in pursuit of him. So uh, yeah. we had it was, and that was a, a, a lot of fun to work on because I had a terrific artist uh, in Mike Perkins and a wonderful editor in Nick Lowe that produced a, a I think a really substantially fun horror slash adventure book now remind me i because i get these the carnage stories mixed up sometimes is this the one where he took over a town no this is the one where he's pursuing of all things the dark cold the dark cold <laughs> which, <laughs> which comes from uh werewolf from by werewolf night. by night so, yeah that's right yeah, it all comes yeah. back around <laughs> yeah well you know you use what you know <laughs> yep that's right <laughs> wonderful and werewolf is in the book you know so there's that too yeah um, now, are you currently working on anything that you'd like to share with our uh, listeners? Uh, theoretically, I'm working on a, uh, I say theoretically because I'm a very slow writer. Uh, I'm working on a miniseries featuring Spider-Man for Marvel. Uh, but I'm, I'm semi-retired, so I right. do bits of things here and there. Usually you can find me at conventions, but not this year. No, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's quite unfortunate. I feel bad for the artists yeah. who... Who and the artists and writers who are there to you know supplement their freelance work yeah. and that's just yeah. a huge well, chunk of their 
their income. It's a big deal. And I, I hope that people reach out to artists for commissions because they will do them. Uh, and you can usually find most of the artists that you like on Twitter and reach out to them that way. Hmm. And it's a good good way for them to uh, uh, make some extra money and for you to get your commission without having to stand in line. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> so right. <it's> a good <laughs> deal. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I hope that people will take advantage of that. This is a this can be a make or break season for a lot of people. That's for sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for letting me talk to you. Talk your ear off about these monsters. It's been a very interesting conversation, especially with the code stuff. And I, I, it, this period of Marvel is just fascinating to me. And I'm glad that you it are is. here to to talk about it. Well, thank you. 